Welcome back, everybody, to another week of Carpool Q&A. Yes. Here I am with Pastor Tom. Not Carpool Karaoke, as some have requested. We'll, no, I've, uh, I've, I've never said no to that. Oh, okay. That's on you. He's producing this, so. Maybe next week. All right. Uh, yeah, this is our Q&A time here with Pastor Tom. We've just come from church, just come from new church plant at mm-hmm. Gold Coast, driving up the highway to... Uh, Underwood, for Tom to preach up there. Hopefully, we'll get there in time. How you going, Tom? Good. I'm just messaging one of our deacons to let him know our ETA. <laughs> nice, nice. Today we've got some questions around church discipline, and then later covenantal theology. Nice. Uh, yeah, nice. First question: How should a church, how should a church practice church discipline? Oh, okay. Uh, look, Matthew 18 and. A little bit, First Corinthians 5 pretty much lays it out. Uh, Matthew 18 is definitely Jesus' pretty comprehensive, well, simple, very simple, but the principles there are applied to every situation for church discipline. And the, the people, people don't realize that you don't think of church discipline as something that is the, is getting excommunicated. That's not, that's what, that's a part of church discipline. That's not church discipline. Church discipline is also, you know, I, I frame it like this. Church discipline is just the ministry of the church. Discipline just means training, being discipled. Okay, so I'm I'm doing church discipline whenever I'm doing teaching, because there's a positive upbuilding side of discipline, like training, discipline to get out of bed and get to work and all that stuff. And then there's the negative side of dis- discipline, not because it's bad, but because it's um, less pleasant, which would be the confronting sin. But while that is primarily the job of the church eldership and office bearers, it is also, um, it's actually the job of every church member, which is what Jesus actually says in Matthew 18. He's actually talking to the people. He says, you guys, well, actually, every time you do a sin that is probably, you know, a bit how you're going, a bit how you're father, you know, I need to have a chat to you. And I mention something to you. Actually, in that moment, I've got an option for church discipline. I can not do it, I can do it well, or I can do it poorly. If I don't say anything to you and I just forget about it, I'm not doing church discipline. Now maybe, yeah, if I should have said something, now I'm in sin. Because Jesus told me, if there's a fence, we've got to address it. So there's that side, or there's doing it right. And doing it right would look like, you know what, that sin wasn't all that serious. I've got grace. It's not a big issue. It's actually not going to, it's not a lifestyle thing. Love covers a multitude of sins, we're told in the New Testament. I'll get over it. You know, he's a new believer, or he's under stress. I can get this. I don't need to jump down his throat with this rebuke. Right? That's that's doing church discipline right, even though nothing happens. Or I'm having a conversation with you and saying, hey, bro, um, just in private, why don't you have a think about this? Or I, I noticed that. Can you tell me more of what that's about? Or should I be worried about you? Hey, you going? Why did that happen? That's church discipline. Or you can do it wrongly. So there's not doing it, there's doing it, then there's doing it wrongly. Doing it wrongly looks like me going, oh, Sammy sinned. I'll go tell, I'll go tell Timothy. I'll go tell Sarah. I'll go tell Pete that Sammy's in sin because I care about the holiness of the church. But what I've actually done in doing that is I just sinned by talking about you behind your back about your sin. But also, Sam, whatever I said, uh, not real Sam, uh, Timothy, Peter, and Sarah, I've just made them sin because they listened to me gossiping so now we are actually needing to be rebuked for us so very simply go and read matthew 18 jesus lines it out you approach the individual hoping for their repentance if they repent you've won them that's the hope 
if they continue in sin, they acknowledge that something is sin, but they continue to do it, then you get a an, an, another a third party person. You don't tell the third per, you don't tell the person. My advice is an older, wiser person who is not your best mate and hates them, and is not their best mate who allows them to get away with stuff, but a wise Christian who you both know and love, who is older than you both. Go up to them and say, hey, um, I need you to actually say to the person that you're confronting, can we catch up with Bob? I think that he would really have something to say here, and I don't want you to think this is just me coming at you. Okay, I'm happy with that. You don't tell Bob everything. You just tell him, we would like you to come in on a Matthew 18 situation. Okay. You sit down with him. You walk through the word with the person and Bob. And you go, Bob, I think it's clear this person is doing, doing this. They're admitting, yep, but I don't think it's an issue or I don't want to stop. And then you've got a, what Jesus calls a second witness. And only on the account of two or three witnesses can you then go to the elders and say, he's refusing to repent. This needs to be dealt with in a higher manner. Now, maybe the elders can just confront him and he stops. Maybe the elders confront him and he decides to leave. Maybe the elders confront him and he repents. Maybe the elders, I can't remember what other options I've already said. If he, if he wants to stay, calling himself a part of this church, I represent this church, I represent Jesus, this church agrees that I'm living the Christian life, but they're staying in their sin, that's when the elders have to take it to the church and say, hey, church, he's not listening, but consider him as a tax collector and an unbeliever, someone who needs to be converted, who needs to repent, and believe the gospel, but not one of us. And therefore, the elders are removing him from the membership role. He can't take communion. Yeah. That's why he'll you'll notice that he's now off the ministries. Yeah, and I don't think that should be done in a local in a in a worship service. I think that would be best done in a membership meeting. It might be done over an email if it's a you know people don't need the details. They just need to be told this person's no longer a member. The ins and outs of all of that are up to each situation and each church. Um, but I do believe elders should have the power to be able to remove membership quickly because otherwise every removal of membership has to be taken to the whole membership and the dirty laundry of a situation, which might involve another member of the congregation who is who doesn't need their dirty laundry aired, is then forced to go through the membership process. So, yeah. Yeah. Where's, where's the line between discussing with someone else someone's sin because yeah. you're concerned about them and just gossip? Where's that line? Uh, so the, the, the line that I always use and tell every Christian to use, whenever somebody took, whenever a Christian talks to you about somebody else's sin, your first question, and this is not advice. I think this is a biblical command. You're sinning unless your first question is, what did they say when you spoke to them about this? And if they say, I haven't, then you have to say, you're making me sin by talking to me about this. I don't want to listen to gossip because that's part of gossip. Please don't talk to me about it unless you've talked to them. If they say, yeah, I brought it up with them and they just brushed it off, then you go, all right, well, go and have a real conversation with them because it's not unrepentance just because you didn't have a conversation. This is not having a conversation. You know what? It's probably on you. So if they say, yeah, I spoke to them about it. They repented that, you know, they're making, you know, they're not doing it again. I just thought I'd let you know. Then you go, oh, well, now you're, you're playing the, the role of the accuser of the brethren. That's Satan's job to remind everybody of their past sins. Rack off. Or they might say, uh, I spoke to them. It went badly. I need a third party. In which you say, why didn't you lead with that? Because now I'm not really a neutral third party. I'm somebody who you've gossiped to. So repent or I'll bring a third party to this conversation. 
yep. and begin the process with you. Yep. It doesn't. Now, one of the big things with church discipline is in a healthy, loving, mature church that is not out to get each other, where there's lots of grace and lots of holiness. It's not always formal legal proceedings. You know, we just, it was a, sometimes you can have a chat with somebody and they repent without them realizing they just got Matthew 18. You know, yep. you brought it up with them, you prayed together, they repented, they've moved on. They go and read Matthew 18 and go, hey, that's what he did to me. Oh, that was helpful. That was loving. Yeah. Yeah, you don't yeah, always great. have to sit somebody down with a clipboard. Yeah. Prepare to be Matthew 18. <laughs> cool. What about church discipline on elders? Uh, Paul brings this up in 1 Timothy 5. Yeah. What does that look like and when should that happen? Yeah, so so he, he brings it up. He says, let elders be worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word. So he understands that there is your ruling past, what, what in the reform world we might call ruling elders and pre teaching elders. The guy who labors in the word all the time, and then the guys who do the bulk of pastoral care, church discipline matters, stuff like that. And there's a there can be a blur between the two lines. Yep. When, when Paul says that, first of all, people should realize that despite what our anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment generation wants them to believe, pastors, by merit of the fact that the Holy Spirit has made them through the local body, an overseer of the local body, they owe that pastor more respect than they give to the everyday Christian brother. You, now, think, you should give honor and, and love to and respect to every one of your Christian brothers, especially elderly, right? And yet, more than that, elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the Word. So, so there's even triple honor, double, double honor for those who are using their life to not pursue worldly gain, to not um, make as much as they otherwise could make, to not get the family car they, they could wish they want, but, but to labor in the word for the sake of the church and be servants of Jesus purely. That that deserves double honor. And that's that's Jesus. That's God speaking. I mean, and, and so I say all of that because that needs to come into play when you're talking about church discipline for an elder. Yeah. Just like, you know, Paul says, treat it, don't rebuke an older man as a brother. Treat him like a father. Mm. What is that? Well, God, I never talked to him about sin. No, you do. But have you ever talked to your father about his sin? Uh, usually I just spend a week thinking about it and realize I was in the wrong. Well, that, that's usually how it works with older Christians. Not always, not a blanket rule, but if they really are a more mature brother. Um, so, you know, it, it's that. It's, it's, it's basically Jesus saying, I know more than you. Whenever you're rebuking an older older man, man do it like he's a well-loved father and be quick to listen, slow to speak. And so it's the same. If I've made them an elder, an overseer in my church, and let's assume this is not a very unbiblical church. If somebody's asking this question, they're at a horrible church that would hardly be classified as a true church and hardly preaching the gospel. You know, maybe they're listening to all the stuff I've said in the past yeah. and they go, oh no, my pastors are uh, unqualified. How do I go about church discipline? I would say, no, the answer is leave. You should not expect that church discipline will go well if the simple preaching of the gospel is not going well. You're just going to get chewed up, gossiped about, spat out, and you'll just be you'll just be thought of as divisive, and you'll wish you'd just left. That's how you do church discipline. You leave the church. You take yourself out of the membership of that church and join a true church. Yep. But let's say a true church, Bible preaching, a sound theology kind of church, Jesus is saying, look, if you're in a true church, a healthy church like this, and you think an elder's in sin, 
triple question yourself. Give them honor, give them double honor, and if he's the teaching pastor, give him triple honor. Assume that you're wrong. But not in a culty way, not because he's untouchable, just because if you sit under his preaching and you sit under his leadership and say, God uses this man, give him lots of grace. But still go through the process. And so he simply says, don't admit, and he's talking to Timothy as an elder, he's saying, don't let somebody come to you and say, hey, Pastor John is in sin unless there is two or three witnesses with them. So this is assuming that they've done the Matthew 18 thing. Somebody was sinned against, maybe abused, maybe manipulated, maybe it, maybe it's less of a pastoral sin. It's more just it's a normal, Christian, normal everyday relationship sin. He, Paul's assuming they've gone to the pastor. The pastor has refused to repent. They took it, you know, a, third, a neutral third party, took it to the to the pastor, and this person's now going, oh no, we're trying to give him all the grace and all the honor that we can, but he really is evidently in sin. Their answer is not to go and ask him to the church, but to take it to the, the, the other elders and say, whether it's written, whether it's personal conversation, say, we believe this elder is in sin. And we're submitting it to you for investigation. And then those people, those people should be willing, if they trust the other elders, to leave it in the elders' hands. And then expect, I think, reasonably expect a follow-up from the elders saying, "Hey, look, here's our investigation. We, we looked at it. Here's why. Here's what we think happened. And he's either repented or actually we side with this pastor, and you were wrong. In which case, you have to decide whether or not these are pastors you now want to be submitted to and have that church. Yeah." If you really are committed, this is, this is a sin. We've done our due, due diligence, and in Jesus' sovereignty, the eldership here are in a court. In a court, well, they have, don't probably don't stay. Yeah. If we're serious enough to not just go, ah, there's a difference in theology or something. You go, nah, this is sin, and it's being tolerated. Then you leave, and you don't make a big mess because you know cry out to everybody. That would be not submitting to the eldership. Mm. Submitting to the eldership. And God's office of elder and giving them honor does not mean that you have to stay there cheap, stay their members, stay in the church. It doesn't mean that. It means that you don't go on a, a um, smear campaign on your way out the church, right? You don't try and tell everybody that you've been wronged on your way out. You submit and go, Jesus is blessing this church in certain ways. And if I think that these elders are unbiblical and unqualified for these reasons, Jesus saw it before me. And if the seven letters to the Revel to the churches of Revelation teach me anything, Jesus can sort them out. He won't last, you know, he won't be slow to fulfill his promises. He will close the church if it needs to be closed. And I'm not more sovereign, more holy than Jesus. I can leave that with him. You know, I just love thinking about the Bible. It stresses me. And I just, uh, yeah. You get an adrenaline rush, like you almost re-rend somebody. We, we, we just had a, had a big, a big stop. There's a lot of traffic. <laughs> I was trying to get in the fast Wasn't lane. his fault. Wasn't his fault. Yeah. Sovereignty of God. Uh, okay. How does coming to the Lord's table, that's the yep. sacrament of communion, yep. how does that play into church discipline in terms yeah. of... Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say it super simply because it'll just tie in perfectly with what we spoke about last time in membership. Yep. And two what, weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago in membership and what we were just saying about church discipline. If we remember that church membership is saying... We all agree I'm a Christian. Me and the church here agree I'm a Christian, so they let me be in membership here. Mm. Then the Lord's Supper, the King's Meal, is the is the covenantal meeting time of that covenant community and family by which we all say we're all communing with Jesus together. That's why we're meeting, because we're, we're, we're all in this family. Um, 
Now, we, we don't hold to a tight closed communion at home. We, we have that door swung open to say, but also any Christian who's here, but we, but we usually say, if you're in good standing with another church, then you're welcome to partake. But if you're in church discipline somewhere else, we don't want you to come in and sip in from our meal. Mm. Um, yeah, that's your sin, but we, we want to hold that pure meal. Yep. So we'll say, look, if you're in good standing with another church, come and feast. Because this is not a hope meal. This is a Christian meal. Let's mm. all partake together. So church discipline would play into saying that might be one of the earliest steps of church discipline when an elder and an elder might say you ought not take church uh, the Lord's Supper anymore because you're endangering yourself and now that I know you're in this sin you're endangering the church mm. or they might it might be the, one of the last things that happen right? when when you get look you're not a member here anymore and with that and with being considered an unchristian you're not willing you're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper it it, it plays in because. Um, it's the meal, it's the ordinance that symbolizes what the membership symbolizes, yep. which is that we're in union and I belong to Jesus. So, in, yeah, if there's yeah, sin, great. that's cut off. Mm. Very sobering. Mm. Moving on. What is the relationship between Old Covenant Israel, the nation, yep. and the new nation, the church, New Covenant? Okay. So there might be a couple of angles people might go here. Mm. People might say totally distinct. God had his Old Testament people Israel. Jesus came for his bride Israel. They rejected him. He put them on hold and started the church. The distinct, different, separate. Jesus is working with the church. And at some point in the future, he'll go back and save Israel. Some people might also hold the replacement view. Mm. Pretty similar. God used Israel. They failed their covenant when they killed their Messiah and disobeyed all of the laws. Therefore, God divorced them, kicked them out, and he started with a new thing called the church. Replaced Israel. And you know what? Because Israel's thrown off and the church is brought in, the church, you know, if you imagine a house, Israel got thrown out, the church was brought in. God said to, Is to the church, you know what? All the promises, all the furniture, you can use for yourself. I gave them to Israel, but you can use them. So replacement theology might say, find an Old Testament promise, apply it to the church wholesale, because we replaced it. I don't hold either of those. I hold fulfillment theology. So pretty much, God said to Abraham, now, the head of the Israel covenant race was not Moses, it was um, Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant created the nation. They're literally a covenant nation. Mm -hmm. And so God said, I'm making you so that I can make a nation from whom one will come that blesses the nations, that blesses the whole world and every family on the earth shall be blessed. So he made him promises. I'll give you generations, descendants, I'll give you land, and then I'll bring the Christ about. And then we see in the Old Testament, God literally fulfills all of those promises. It says in Joshua and uh, Judges and other, other places, God fulfilled by giving them the land just as he promised. He gave Abraham many descendants, as many as the stars, just as he promised. So all those promises were fulfilled to Abraham throughout the Moses, you know, the Moses law covenant and also the Davidic covenant. Abraham got his promises. He got the nation. He got the descendants. And then came the Christ. Once the Christ comes, God has fulfilled all of his promises to Abraham. Except the promise that through him all the nation, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So... Now, how does that happen? Well, that's, that's sort of the, the one missing piece. Promises to Abraham, 
to create the nation of Israel, who would foreshadow and bring forth the actual physical Christ. Remember, the, the nation needed to stay pure and protected so that the Christ could come from Abraham. God promised Abraham, gave him the nation so that it could bring about the Christ. And then through Christ, God would bless all the nations. What's the missing link between Christ and blessing all the nations? It's the church. Well, he's going to bless all the nations through the gospel by making the nations come into the church and by preaching the gospel through the church. Mm. So in other words, the church is the answer to how God blesses all the nations through Jesus, which was a promise to Abraham. So in that, we can see that's a that, that's fulfillment theology, not replacement theology. So we go, oh, promises to Abraham, chuck them out, because now the Christ is going to bless all the nations, all the families of the nations of the earth. You go, no, no, that, that was a part of Abraham's promise. Mm. So we see Israel exist and then fulfill its, it failed, but God still through Israel fulfilled his promises to Israel. Mm. And then out of Israel came tens of thousands of Jews, which to Israel, I would say out of Israel came spiritual Israel. And spiritual Israel, we're told in the New Testament, is the church. Um, so it's it's fulfillment. The, the church is what Israel existed to produce. The church is what Jesus established to pass Israel into. Yep. Right? Jesus came down. He picked up the, the faithful Israelites, put them into the church and said, you're going to be the foundation and the first generation of this new thing, the kingdom of God, the church. Some people think Israel is Jewish, church is Gentile. So they hear he's done away with the Jews and he's gone to the Gentiles. The answer is no. The New Testament clearly shows us a beautiful mixing of both. When we say church, we mean ethnically Jewish Gentile, but spiritually Jewish in Christ, the church. So the church is Jewish Gentile. The Gentiles are Gentile. The Jews are Jews. The church is Jewish Gentile. Right. The fulfillment of both. Christ, Ephesians tells us, broke down the wall of hostility. There is no spiritual distinction between Jew and Gentile now. Mm. Some people look at Jews and goes, oh, they're a curse. They're under a hardening. They can't believe I won't evangelize them. Other people think, you know, they're, they're naturally more... Um, uh, uh, inclined to the go to the gospel, mm. we've got to take it to them. Neither is true. Right. As a covenant, there is a a promise that, that that Paul picks up in Romans eleven to say, as a nation, they will be blessed again in the end times. And, and that blessing is not a land blessing. It's not a national blessing. It's a spiritual blessing. They'll be they'll they'll be they'll get Christ again. So in other words, there's going to be a great revival. Whether they are in the land of Israel is not a part of the promise. The promise is the descendants of Abraham again will see a great revival. So, but that doesn't really play down to the individual. If I've got a Jew sitting on the on the bus or a Gentile sitting on the bus, I'm not going to go Gentile because well his race didn't kill Jesus. Well, yeah, they did because the Gentiles killed Jesus too. But that but that's not, that doesn't come into it. I don't go uh, well the Jew because he's he shares the bloodline of Jesus. Okay. Both of these people are totally depraved and have nothing but sin and Satan blinding them. Both of them need to be brought alive to the preaching of the gospel. I'm going to preach to both of them if I can. The, the, the fact is that we should not expect. I would even be careful about this. Like who's to say a lot of these Israelites, we won't see a big revival in the land of Israel, but it's still not the end time revival, right? 
So I'm, I'm not, I don't have any obligation to push either way in terms of who do I share the gospel with. Yeah. He's gone. There's no, because of what Paul says in the New Testament. Yeah. There is no distinction. Yeah. If you find a distinction, remove it. There's no spiritual distinction. Zero. You're just Christian. Just no gen- distinction. There's no gender. Yeah. Just like gender distinctions, which is, or, or employment distinctions, which is what he says. There's no Jew. There's no um, uh, Gentile. There's no slave or free or male or female. So if, if somebody wants to say, well, there's a little bit of a distinction between Jew and Gentile, then I'll say, well, there's a little bit of a distinction between somebody who makes more than the other person. There's a little bit of a distinction between the male and the female. Yep. It doesn't really matter. Now, you have to get rid of all distinctions, spiritually yep. speaking. They're just souls that are on their way to hell. They need Jesus, and they can be saved. Thinking about the, the birth of the church, yep. is Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Day, yeah. is that the birth of the church, yep. or did... The church exists yeah, under so, Moses. So, well, even further back, the church, in, in a in a true spiritual sense, the church, and if by church we mean the true saved people of God. So let's go back a few weeks and use the invisible church language, right? Yeah. The invisible church has existed since Adam placed his faith in the promise that a son would come and crush the head of the serpent. Okay? The church, in that sense, if all we invite church is spiritual Israel, the truly regenerate. Yeah, there's always been a representation of them all throughout history. What we mean by church being birthed in the New Testament is the church that has given to it the new covenant promises. So you, to be fair, when we say church, we usually mean new covenant church. So yes, I'm happy to say there was a church under Moses, a church under Abraham and all that. But but when I say the birth of the church, what we're meaning is the first breaking forth of the church having given to it all the new covenant promises. It's yep. like coming of age. It was always the same person, but on the 18th birthday, it was the birth, of, the begetting of the church, right? Just like, you know, we're told that the kings and the sons, a king, when he comes in his coronation day and sits down on the throne, God says to him, today, you're my son. Son of God is king, you know, language for the kings in the Old Testament. Today, you're my son, because I have begotten you today. Well, they didn't come alive that day. They entered a new role that day. So we say the birth of the new covenant church. The, the first day that the church had the new covenant blessings was marked by receiving the greatest new covenant blessing, which was forgiveness in the blood of Jesus and filling with the Holy Spirit. In all of this, thinking about old covenant Israel and the church today, how does thinking about the old covenant Israel as church, as God's people, how does that yeah. inform our ecclesiology today? How can we read the Old Testament in light of okay. church today? We don't have long. We have about three minutes. Okay, so I would say don't throw out the Old Testament. Don't apply wholesale the whole Old Testament to the church. Instead, put a filter between the Old Testament and the New New Testament, and only the things that make it through that filter are allowed to apply to the church. And that filter is, is it fulfilled in Christ, and then do we see the apostles apply it to the church? Okay, so land promises... The apostles make very clear because they, they never talk about land promises for Christians. The land we've been promised is in the next life, which yes, this is earth when it's remade, but it's not this life land promises, right? If my people pray, I will heal their land. There is no promise for the healing of a Christian's backyard or a church's, you know, herb garden if they pray. Classic right? revival verse. Yeah, but so we can apply that verse if we go, what was God promising? He would pour out all of his covenantal promises, because that was just covenantal promises given to Israel. 
the, the principle is when my people repent and uphold their side of the covenant, I will pour out my side of the covenant. Yeah. Well, in the new covenant, we can absolutely use that principle and say, if God's people repent, return to him, humble themselves and pray, then he will pour out the Holy Spirit, in repentance and faith. Yeah. That's an even better way to do it. So, so that's where I'm putting the, fil the hermeneutical filter in to say, yes, the old covenant can apply and give us principles for the new covenant, but the filter is, how did the apostles use this idea of the Old Testament? Mm. And if you do your study, there are books you can get. The use of the Old Testament in the New, stuff like that. Yep. If you, or a good Bible, a good study Bible, or a good pastor can probably help you do this. Then you can start seeing all the ways, and the very interesting ways, that the apostles use Old Testament promises and sometimes totally spiritualize them. Or sometimes leave them pretty much in their context, only slightly tweak them, right? So it's, um, yeah, it's very interesting how we, the question of how we apply Old Testament covenant stuff mm. to New Testament, New Covenant stuff, is a whole range of debates. And Matt, it, something, a part of theology that I love to talk about, mm. but I would just end on this. One of the key distinctions between the Old Covenant people and the New Covenant people, or Israel and the church, is that the Old Covenant was always an impure people. They were never expected to be 100% regenerate because it was it was a physical descending covenant, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always going to include some, some who are unsaved. That's Paul's point in Romans 9. But the New Covenant people is different and better in that we are supposed to expect that it will be, as close as possible, a people of purely regenerate um, origin, right? Mm. So in that sense, we go, ah, oh, church discipline, you know, they didn't do that in Israel, you know. You could be unsaved, but still in in Israel, yeah, but you can't be unsaved and in Christ. So there is big distinctions between how we think of Israel and the church. Awesome. That Great. is what makes us Baptists and not Presbyterians. Presbyterians. Don't baptize your kids. Oh, yeah. Until they're believers. Sweet. That'll conclude this week's Q&A. Thanks, Tom. No worries. See you Thank all next you week. Driving.